Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Social distancing and limiting our contacts with others will be a fact of life for a long time to come. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalised. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined by Professor David Goldblatt, who I've admired for many years, his writings on sport. I think he's even written something very recently for the RSA Journal. David, it's great to have you on. I know who you are, but why don't you tell the listeners who you are? Well, I'm a sports writer, an academic and a broadcaster. Some of the year I teach in the United States, teaching the history of the Olympics and the political economy of world football. And, you know, I do a certain amount of journalism. And my first love is Tottenham Hotspurs. But, you know, I've lost my heart to Bristol Rovers, which is where I live. David, before we get into the meat of this, what's the pandemic been like for you? I mean, most of the people I've spoken to on this podcast are knowledge workers, and they have reasonably nice houses. So actually, it's not been that disruptive. And indeed, there have been some kind of upsides. How has it been for you? It's been like the curate's egg good in parts. I mean, it began rather strangely because I was teaching in Los Angeles and the college decided to close down in the second week of March and switch to online. And I thought, you know, it's time to go, particularly when I saw they were panic buying guns in the Asian American parts of the Inland Empire. So I had a kind of slightly nerve wracking flight home. But since I'm in the bubble of privilege, you know, in a reasonably big house, my kids are here. I thought they kind of left home forever, leaving university and all that. And we've had actually pretty extraordinary family time for the last seven weeks that I never thought we would have. My partner and I are both in work and Bristol is pretty relaxed by comparison to a lot of places. I find the disconnect between living this life and what's going on in the hospitals and care homes of the country really, really difficult to process. So I find it's quite a strange and odd state of mind. I just got to ask you one question, of course, remembering that you spend a lot of time in the States. I mean, one of the really big issues right now is the attempt by Donald Trump to turn this into a kind of anti-Chinese story. I'm not getting into the, you know what actually happened at the beginning, but clearly this is a political attempt to lay the blame at China's door, picking up on a lot of kind of fear and animosity towards China and America. I mean, obviously, you were in particular circles when you've been in America, but the American attitude to China, is that something that you've noticed while you've been there? 
I mean, I certainly noticed, you know, the reaction amongst Chinese Americans and Asian Americans who were on the end of racist attacks and epithets in the street by association. So I was acutely aware of that. I mean, in the circles that I move, it's like left-wing Los Angeles. So people are cautious about China and see this as much on that side of the fence. People see this as another chapter in the decline of American hegemony and the inability of America to actually take a leadership role in the provision of global public goods, which is the tragedy of this circumstance. But yeah, there's a lot of traction for blaming China in the United States, as with so many things, so completely polarised in its attitudes. So without further ado, David, I'm going to ask you the question we've asked everyone else. So Professor David Goldblatt, how do you think the world could and the world should change after this pandemic? obviously with particular reference to your specialist subject of sport. Well, my first thought is how this moment has revealed the extraordinary inequalities of access to public space and exercise under these conditions. And there's been an enormous amount of talk about when leagues are starting and what's going to be postponed. And I actually think the most important thing in the world of sport after this is over is that we address ourselves to enhancing the opportunities for people to play sport and to exercise and to live, you know, in a healthy fashion. And this has sort of cruelly revealed those inequalities. And for all the kind of sound and fury about the professional spectacle and the consequences of the virus for that, I actually think the most important thing that we have neglected so heinously for so long is to address ourselves to everyday exercise. And, you know, there are moments of clarity about what the future could be. I don't know about you, but the air quality is so, so much better in Bristol. The amount of space available for cycling on the roads has been so much greater. An outline of what a much healthier, more mobile, less car-dependent society could look like is out there. That, for me, is the kind of the first the starting point for thinking about it. Just on that point, I mean, we've all been reminded of how important exercise is. And, you know, in my street in Clapham, I haven't just seen the people I'm used to seeing when I'm out running. There's clearly quite a lot of people out exercising in a very intentional way who maybe weren't doing it before. Yeah, which is great. And let's hope they get a taste for it and carry on. How nice it would be if, you know, there were more space allocated to pavements in our cities and to cycle lanes. It's a huge challenge. I mean, older folks who are currently the most confined of all, the real challenge is to, you know, transform the level of mobility amongst older people and get, you know, the biggest bang for our public health buck. And again, I think that's something in the world of sport has not been very good at. The relentless focus is on youth. It's all about youth. How can we get kids doing this and that? And that's good. You know, no problem with that. But we have not sufficiently focused on the elderly. And that's more and more of us. And I would like to hear the conversation in the world of sport be much more cross-generational than it has been. I mean, you know, the Olympics is still calling the youth of the world, whatever the hell that means these days. And it's like, Call the old people. This relationship between elite sport and participation, which is something that I remember getting into a lot around the London Olympics and looking at the research and seeing that we all like to believe, and it feels intuitive, that when we're all thinking a lot about elite sport, that that somehow encourages us to participate. But the relationship between 
elite and mass participation is more complex and attenuated, isn't it? It isn't just that the more we think about the first, the, the more likely we are to do the second. Yeah, I mean, there are different things going on according to different social classes as well. I mean, where you have an established, albeit narrow and fragile, route out of poverty through professional sport, overwhelmingly for young men, there is still a connection. Boxing, you know, Manny Pacquiao helps to sustain high levels of participation by young men in boxing in Central America. Or, you know, similarly, in the Dominican Republic, baseball has a similar place, and to an extent in working class Britain and football. But for the vast majority of people and for the vast majority of sport and exercise, you know, it's about what do your folks do? What do your friends do? What access do you have? How much money do you have? I mean, after the London 2012 Olympics, which was the Olympic Games most systematically orientated towards engaging in the participation question, you actually had a decline in the level of exercise in London. And that was overwhelmingly to do with the closure of swimming pools in an era of austerity when people couldn't afford it. So I think the other thing is that the intuitive model, I think we've just been sold one here by the elite sports industry. I mean, I read the experience of consuming the Olympic Games as much more likely to be you know, this is impossible. I mean, the narrative of uh, you saw an Olympian win a gold medal, which made you want to be a gold medalist, and here you are today. It's like, yeah, for 0.001% of the population who are kind of insanely driven and have the psychological skill set to make it an elite sport. But for the rest of us, this is not a realistic model of how people operate. And we, again, we need to be thinking so much harder about how we spend our money and what public messages we're given to encourage people to do more. I mean, I personally think money spent on parkrun, for example, would yield a thousand times more public policy benefits than spending money on UK athletics. Yeah, well, I happily agree with that, not only because I'm a keen parkrunner, but also we gave uh, Albert Medal, the RSL Albert Medal, to Paul Simpson Hewitt last year, and he made a fantastic speech And what, of course, I hadn't realised before I heard him was how strongly for him Parkrun was linked to issues around mental health and well-being generally. And indeed, I think he said in his talk that at certain times Parkrun was the only thing that got him out of bed in the morning. So anybody who hasn't seen Paul's lecture, it's on the RSA website, and I encourage you to do it. I also encourage you, of course, to find out about Parkrun. But this point, David, which is that we buy into a kind of mythical relationship between elite sport and our own participation, when the evidence doesn't really suggest that that's right, that's part of a broader ambivalence. So I don't want to be obsessed by football. I'm no, a- go on, be obsessed. That's fine. <laughs> I'm a West Brom fan, so I'm very keen to see how they're going to resolve what happens in the championship. But what I find interesting, and it's something that is always the case, which is that the way people like me or you are thinking about the return of football is emotional. You know, we miss it in our lives. We want the passion again. We want to be able to talk to our friends down the pub about whatever it might be. Yet it looks to me as though the conversations that are taking place around returning the sport coming back are fundamentally driven by finance. Obviously, There are health concerns and health issues, but it's primarily, when you read about it, it feels like a financial crisis from the side of the sporting establishment. Yeah, I mean, there are two things. This is the paradox of professional sport, but most acutely football in this country, is that, you know, it's pretty obvious. Football is a whole bunch of different cultural phenomena. I mean, it's a set of rituals that we're all missing, you know, from attending games with our roots and habits and landmarks and people 
that imbue it with meaning. To, I mean, I'm really missing hearing the music from Sports Report at five o'clock on Five Live. Saturday afternoon is seriously incomplete without it. I think we feel it acutely as well, is that it's a place we gather in crowds. And that's one thing we're really, really not able to do at the moment and may not be able to do for quite some time. And that has, you know, emotional and psychological power that I think we're missing. And it's a soap opera and it's a public theatre and all of these things, yeah, they leave a big gap. And I think these indicate that it's so crazy that at the same time, this profoundly important set of cultural rituals and practices is being run like a business. I mean, like a rather bad and rather bizarre business, you know, with no resilience and no reserves. And, you know, I return to my long-held kind of utopian thought that when this is over or, you know, when this moment passes, that we reflect much more deeply on how and why we have allowed this profoundly important bit of collective cultural capital to be owned by such an unpleasant selection of characters. You know, fossil fuel-driven Gulf monarchies and their sovereign funds, Russian oligarchs, cheapskate American billionaires, Thai monopolists. It's like, this is not right. This needs to change. Well, that's powerful. I mean, I can't resist when you talk about missing the music for sports. I used to live, when I lived in Birmingham, I listened to Radio WM on a Saturday afternoon. And they had this device for raising your heart rate, which was, so there were, there were six West Midlands professional teams that were at that stage. And first of all, a klaxon would sound. And the klaxon meant there'd been a goal in one of the six West Midland matches. So that your heart rate would go up. <laughs> and then they'd say, and now we go to, and then if they said the Hawthorns or wherever the Albion were playing, that's the second bit of your heart rate going up. So you're now absolutely on the edge of your seat. But you still don't know what's happened. And I'll never forget, it was a long, long time ago, the West Brom commentator was a guy called Malcolm Boyden. And I remember the klaxon went. I think we were losing 3-2 at home to Plymouth Argyle. The klaxon went. The voice said, and now we're going to the Hawthorns. And we went to the Hawthorns and Boyden's voice rang through and he said, I said, things couldn't get worse for the Albion. I was wrong. <laughs> but this is your point, isn't it? That our relationship to these things is unconditional. It's visceral. Well, it is visceral, but I wonder, is it unconditional? But yet it's part of a cynical, global, commercial empire. And that's what's constantly playing out in the world of sport, in our relationship to sport. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is how we are generally with sort of consumer capitalism. I mean, these kind of issues arise when we buy clothes in a shop or online and we're kind of we're not thinking about the consequences i mean the newcastle takeover which is going on in the midst of this seems to typify this uh, and as you say is it unconditional i well, mean the newcastle thing's amazing david isn't it because it's like i mean you thought they couldn't get a more unpleasant owner than the one they had but they've managed to find <laughs> oh they have and you know <laughs> the unpleasantness of the conversation online is extraordinary and the whataboutery is extraordinary and a lot of Newcastle fans you know are just saying we don't care we don't care we don't care look at who else is in charge of football clubs now we want our money and we want Newcastle to be good and I understand where they're coming from but I'll have to say you know if the Saudi investment fund buys Bristol Rovers anytime soon I will not be going to Bristol Rovers and that will be the end of it 
And there has to be a limit, you know. I mean, it shouldn't just be down to fans anyway. It's like, how the hell have we got to a point where it's okay for Newcastle United, a working-class Victorian social institution, can be purchased by the Saudi Investment Fund? This is not right. You know, this is like buying, I don't know, the National Trust. How would we feel if, you know, a sovereign fund just bought up a huge amount of the kind of great buildings owned by the National Trust? It would be considered totally impermissible. And I think the same logic should apply to football clubs. And it's not just down to the fans who are powerless for the most part anyway. The institutions have failed us. I mean, I have to say, I'm not terribly hopeful about the post-COVID reformation of sports governance, but that's what we need. As sport comes out of this crisis, so much of it is kind of distressed in financial terms. And therefore, one assumes the default is that sports clubs will become even more willing to take money from whatever source on whatever terms in order simply to survive. I mean, you know, at the top end of the game, I mean, I think there's generally going to be less money around, certainly at the lower levels of the sport. And in terms of taking more money, I mean, they really have to think, first of all, about cutting their costs. This is the reality of operating as a business. It's like when your revenues are tumbling, and they will tumble because there isn't going to be any match day money for a long time, certainly, you know, this side of Christmas and perhaps longer, they really have to address themselves to their wage bills. I mean, that's the priority. And again, it's a collective action problem. You know, individually, nobody wants to do anything about it because they always feel they're going to be outflanked by their competitors. And so there has to be forms of collective regulation. Another lesson that we've sort of, you know, forgotten in Britain, as in many places, is that you have to have collective communal public regulation of individual actors because they just will not act in the collective self-interest. And that's where we need to start. I mean, sure, I'm sure they'd all, you know, sell their grandma if it meant more money for another right back. But that's, again, why you need collective public regulation is to save people from the worst version of themselves. I remember at a Conservative Party conference 15 or 20 years ago, I was on a platform and uh, I was pleased to myself by making a kind of point about markets because I said to the audience, look, if you want an example of the kind of problem of, of markets in particular areas, I said, I bet most of you think there are too many foreign players in the Premier League. And, and they went, oh, yes, we do. And I said, right, great. But then if your club was able to buy Ronaldo, I was talking about fat Ronaldo then, this was a long time ago, <laughs> you'd all jump at it, wouldn't you? And they went, oh, yeah, we would. So it's interesting that sport does actually offer us some quite vivid examples of the kind of problem of collective action. So do you have, share with us, David, some kind of vision for how there could be a kind of renaissance in sport, not losing the dynamism of the market. We want great stadia and we want great, you know, we want it to be filmed wonderfully. So we don't want to drive the money out of it, for goodness sake. But how do we find a way of having the elite, having the money, having the stuff that's good, but not selling our soul? What would be the route to do that after this crisis? I mean, I think it depends on the sport, you know, there's no one set of answers. But in regard to football, I think the singularly most important thing is a matter of ownership. And I think it's time for the money changes to be driven out of the temple. I mean, I would take the model of the Glazers purchase of Manchester United, where the club in effect pays for them to own it 
by having shifted the money that they borrowed to buy it in the first place onto Manchester United's balance sheet. And I would like to see a situation where every football club currently in private ownership had to across the board spend, let's say, 10% of their revenues buying other shares off the owners and passing them to the supporters' trusts. This would include ensure competitive balance across the board. It would mean that owners did actually get their money compensated. But ultimately, it would lead to social ownership of all football clubs along the German model, at the very least, where you have 51% in the hands of some kind of collective agency. And then I think we've got half a chance. But until we actually change who owns these institutions, I don't think we can envisage actually a really serious shift in their social responsibility, their commitment to environmental issues, their engagement with health and public welfare issues. I mean, let alone the end of corruption. So that's, as with so many things in the world, I think ownership is where we need to start. It's fascinating having this conversation, Debbie, because one of the things that puts into my mind is that in many areas of life, there are people who will articulate a vision of how things could be different. And there will be a sense of a debate oriented towards the possibility of change. And we're seeing a lot of that precipitated by this crisis. But actually, and maybe this refers back to your point earlier about the kind of role of governing bodies, you're a very unusual figure in terms of your willingness to kind of look at the overall system of sport and to start to think about how it might be different. There really aren't that many voices. When you hear people in the governing bodies and they talk, it's nearly always just talking about money and growth or boosterism. It's very rarely about a kind of vision for the future of the sport. Yeah, this is a problem. I mean, I think one of the problems in sports administration, and if you'll forgive the cliche, it really is a lot of old white men. I mean, not exclusively, but really just like overwhelmingly at every level, and who have operated both outside of sport and inside sport in a world where their judgment and assumptions are very, very rarely challenged. They live in the most extraordinary, unreflective bubble. And I think the singularly most effective thing would be to, you know, change the diversity of who is running sport, you know, in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of sexual orientation. We really, really need to shake it up. That would make a big difference. I mean, it would be great to have a more critical sporting press. And there are voices out there, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of columnists and investigative journalists doing good work, worrying and thinking about these issues. I would like to see, you know, more and a bit more relentless and applying a bit more hardball with these people. And, you know, I think there's also... It's a matter of all of us who just like sport. We have to act occasionally, not merely as consumers, but as citizens. And that is the real challenge. Well, David, it's been great to talk. And I think the message I've taken from this is don't just miss sport in this crisis. Think about how sport can be different. Now, I can't let you go without asking you a question we ask everybody, which is some people are kind of develop new habits, new skills. I was talking to Caroline Lucas the other day, and I said, what are you doing? She goes out and she plays music uh, to try to attract Swifts to the Swift box she has in her garden. Kevin Rudd's been reading the original works of Chinese Marxism. David, is there anything, that any new skill or competence or enthusiasm that you've been able to develop in the time that you've had at home? I mean, weirdly, Matthew, I feel like I've been in training for this, you know, like for the last 30 years. I wrote my PhD in the early 1990s in my bedroom without leaving the house, and I haven't really looked back 
it's not as unusual as it might be for some. And consequently, apart from going swimming, which I desperately miss, life has carried on much as normal. The one, I suppose, sort of lockdown attempt, you know, do something new is to finally, finally get to the end of Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. This is my third attempt. I've given up on it twice. This is number three. I'm at about page 200. It's very strange. We'll see if I actually make it to the end. Well, I've tried three times as well. So you've inspired me to have a fourth go. David, thanks so much for joining us and uh, stay well. My pleasure. Thank you. You stay well. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.